tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. The federal government is moving forward on a Conservation Corps-like program geared toward employing indigenous youth, including Native Hawaiians. It's called the Indian Youth Services Corps program. It would provide education, employment, and training opportunities through conservation projects on public lands. HPR reporter Ku'uve Hirishi joins us to tell us more. Aloha, Catherine. Yes, so the U.S. Interior Department recently released draft guidelines on how to implement this new Indian Youth Service Corps program. The initiative is sort of patterned on that traditional Conservation Corps model where federal agencies who see a uh, backlog in perhaps conservation projects on their lands need the help and youth out there need the work. And uh, what's different about this is, like you mentioned, it's designed specifically for Indigenous youth. So young adults ages 16 to 30 from Native Hawaiian communities, Native American, Alaska Native, uh, would be eligible to uh, apply. There also is an opportunity for veterans, as old as 35, um, to also join in this opportunity. So under the draft guidelines, basically federal agencies like the U.S. National Park Service, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, U.S. Forest Service would provide the land and potential conservation projects, and then they would partner with a community organization or a uh, I think of Kupu and I think of mm-hmm. uh, that organization who would then oversee the participants and sort of take care of the um, application process and all of that. But uh, what's unique about this program in, in sort of targeting indigenous communities is that if they have a land base of sorts, so Native Hawaiians here have Hawaiian homelands, uh, that uh, could also, the program would also allow participants to work on projects on those lands. And so George McDonald, the youth programs manager for the U.S. National Park Service, is sort of the go-to expert on this initiative. He's launched, gosh, a multitude of successful programs, youth programs nationwide that aims to engage youth from underserved and and economically disadvantaged communities. Uh, He says uh, programs like this uh, not only benefit the youth involved, but their communities uh, at large. He was able to uh, do something with the Pueblo of Acoma, New Mexico, in uh, with a similar modeled program where he rekindled the traditional models of cooking. We helped to reestablish the whole technique behind traditional bread making with the clay ovens. And so that led to a sustainable crops that were being grown. So now the Acoma people are now growing their food and they are solving some of the nutrition desert issues that have been impacting them before, becoming more self-sufficient around having healthier food, growing the food, and then connecting it back to that rich tradition. And so These are some of the things that we would like to accomplish through the um, Indian Youth Service Corps. So when we think about the potential for Hawaii in in that particular uh, sort of thread, we're talking about fish pond restoration, right? And taro cultivation. Uh, But this sort of project-based work is just one of the three options under the program. 
Uh, so there would be, you know, the sort of short several months to a year type project where a youth could be employed and they do everything from trail restoration to invasive species removal. But then you've got this interesting research internship opportunity where participants could research oral history, develop educational resource materials at these parks or, or study things like cultural tourism. And this would all be uh, available for folks under this uh, program. The third pathway is the apprenticeship, uh, sort of the um, vocational trade skills, right? Construction, electrical, plumbing. Uh, much of that was the focus in that Akuma uh, example that he gave earlier. They built these ovens, and so stonemasonry and learning that uh, was a part of it. But McDonald says, you know, the, the program comes at a time when communities are sort of dealing with uh, climate adaptation and resilience, and he sees this program as a pathway to give Indigenous youths uh, good-paying jobs to tackle the climate crisis. program like this, especially for Hawaii, where you've had some adverse impacts from climate events. This is a way to build resiliency and defense against those adverse climate events. And it also shows potentially how we can train a new generation of workers in these emerging areas that are going to be the new economy moving forward. This could potentially grow into a real economic boom for these islands. What a great idea. Right. It, there's There are a lot of social, economic, and cultural benefits to something uh, like this and conservation benefits. Uh, but it is new news. Many of the Native Hawaiian organizations and representatives have spoken to about the potential for this program in Hawaii. We're somewhat caught off guard uh, with the announcement, and so they're right now exploring ways uh, this program could benefit them, including the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Uh, they're still looking through the guidelines, but I did get to speak to some of the homestead leaders, Hawaiian homestead leaders, who have been uh, working on uh, climate adaptation and resilience projects in their communities. I think of Moloka'i and sea level rise uh, and er erosion along the coastlines. And, you know, something like this could really give them the, the labor, but could also uh, give their youth in that community an opportunity to do the work. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, who knows where that's going to go, right? You spark something, they, they get launched on a career path. Exactly, exactly. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, the U.S. Interior Department is planning consultations with these communities on these draft guidelines that will begin later this month. Uh, consultations with the Native Hawaiian community in particular is set for December 9th. So we will see the feedback from that community then. I mean, I'm just thinking I, you know, was out at uh, Pearl Harbor Hickam and I came across a project there where they had, you know, uh, local kids working on a restoration project of a marsh. And I was just thoroughly impressed. They had a cultural advisor there and, you know, but wonderful opportunities for groups like that. Exactly. And and the cultural component, uh, as McDonald explained, is, is very much a strong part of the Indian Youth Service Program in particular. Yeah. Great idea. Uh, let's hope they all run with this. Yes. <laughs> Thanks well, so much, Kuve. We have been talking with HPR reporter Kuve Hirishi. To read more of her stories, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual info session for the Master of HR Management program is November 4th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't. Like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Marsh Cafe, we catch up with local company Hohonu to learn how they're helping NOAA with flood mitigation. In partnership with NOAA, Hohonu is working with 54 Southeast U.S. communities to deliver water level data to aid in flood risk and resilience planning. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. This is the conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time to test you with our backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka, olana, omau, okaholabe. Hawaii Public Radio celebrates 40 years on air this month. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking back to the early days of HPR and to its very first moments on the air. The first broadcast in 1981 was preceded by years of effort. The story began in 1976 when a nonprofit organization called Hawaii Islands Public Radio was formed. And it took a few years before a functioning broadcast facility was ready to go into operation. When Cliff Evelyn joined as general manager in 1980, he brought his experience in the Wisconsin public radio system with him. In the following year, when University of Hawaii President Fujio Fujimatsuda offered studio space in the old varsity building near Klum Gym on UH Manoa's lower campus, then the stage was set. The first broadcast was on November 13. 1981, and it began with an appropriately dramatic choice of music. So for today's Backyard Quiz, what was the very first piece of music ever played on Hawaii Public Radio? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com.
Lifting the Veil on the Western Pacific Fisheries Management Council. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat Deputy Editor Nathan Eagle is on the line today. Good morning. Good morning. So you are uh, about to embark on a series of stories, I understand. That's right. It's definitely a deep dive. This uh, is the first part of seven that was published today. It provides kind of a long overview of what's to come. Um, Basically, we're trying to get at, you know, how was public money used by Westpac uh, to influence, if it did, um, state legislation, federal policy, everything in between. So we'll start today and then we'll go into a deeper look into some of the state um, legislation and influence with the Ahamoku system. Then we'll uh, back up and look at the federal level uh, at, with specific marine monuments like Papahanaumokuakea. And then we'll talk about who's who on Westpac on the council uh, before then stepping back again to look at a regional council comparison. You know, how does Westpac stack up against uh, the other councils around the country? Uh, before looking more, more forward and back with the uh, history of the Magnuson-Stevens Act, uh, which is up for renewal this year. Right, and that created these councils. It absolutely did, yeah. Back in 1976, had Stevens and Magnuson um, uh, needed to come up with a way to, at first anyway, kind of get the foreign fleets um, off of the coast. They were fishing a lot closer to shore at that time, and so it established some, some rules, some laws, uh, and uh, created these eight regional fishery management councils. Now, I, I seem to recall that we had a conversation uh, a while ago because you did do uh, some digging uh, into the uh, uh, spending of a particular fund with Westpac. That's right. In, in 2019, we uh, took a close look at the Sustainable Fisheries Fund, which Westpac manages, the small millions of dollars, um, and looked at how that had been used. And so that um, published in 2019 and Soon thereafter, it caught the attention of some congressmen who asked the inspector general to do a, um, an investigation into it. And that invest- investigation is still pending, um, but it made us think we should just do a step back and look at Westpac as a body and what did the Magnuson-Stevens Act really intend for this council and others to do and, and what's, what's it actually doing. Right. So you basically uh, kind of lay out the landscape, you know, the origins and what the mission is and, and how well they're living up to that? Absolutely, yeah. And in theory, the the law provides um, for balance. You know, these councils, um, by design, are uh, they have a ground-up kind of approach to managing the fisheries, and they're supposed to kind of uh, look at the commercial interests as well as conservation and, you know, manage it in a way that we have stocks um, for the next generation. And so... Uh, and looking closer at how that's kind of played out over the decades, um, it's perhaps not a surprise that it has been loaded with fishery interests, and some of those decisions have been a little bit more short-term than, than long-term. So in the updates to the MSA, uh, and there's only been two. This, this would be the third if this one goes through. Um, they've kind of pushed it back more towards the conservation side with each update. And uh, Kitty Simons is at the helm. She's been there for a long time. Uh, but there have been just questions about, you know, w- whether they're, what, overstepping their, you know, the boundaries um, with lobbying. 
Absolutely, yeah. She's the longest-serving director of, of any of the regional councils. She started in the early 80s uh, with, with Westpac, and it was within several years of, of starting there that the that federal auditors first took interest and were kind of uh, critical of the way uh, it was being managed. They said, you know, travel expenses, lobbying, and, and other things. They did, did that again in 2009, and uh, found shortcomings in, in terms of transparency, um, but stopped short of saying this was lobbying or that was lobbying, um, in part because they had congressmen and state lawmakers who said, yeah, we were definitely lobbied. But when they went to Westpac, they said, no, we weren't doing that. And so kind of a he said, she said thing, and they didn't, didn't uh, bring anything further with that. And so we'll see what this next audit um, that's, that's pending has, has to say whenever that might come out. Right. So this doesn't just affect uh, Hawaii waters. It extends out through the throughout the Pacific, the Western Pacific. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a, a Western uh, Westpac overseas is actually the biggest region of, of any of it. It's about 1.5 million square miles. Um, generally federal waters, three to 200 miles offshore around Hawaii, Guam, American Samoa, the Northern Marianas, a uh, handful of uh, remote islands. And so it's quite a lot of uh, territory, and it's very complex work uh, and technical work that these councils have to do. Um, very, very hard job. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I read with interest how they basically did not support the idea of establishing the uh, 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 Makua Kea, uh Reserve. That's, that's- yeah, Papahanaumokuakea or the Pacific Remote Islands, Rose Atoll, any if it's a marine monument and restricts commercial fishing, then Westpac is is not in favor of that. And in large part too because it's had a series of uh, council chairs, you know, who were lo- the longline fleet. So marine monuments mean lost um, fishing grounds. Um, of course, they're they're free to make up that lost catch in, in other waters, but that can add expenses, of course, with having to travel farther. Right. Well, it'll be um, interesting to see yeah. uh, uh, what you write in in the um, in the series. But thanks so much, Nathan. Thanks. That was uh, Deputy Editor Nathan Eagle with today's reality chat. To read his story online, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Pacific University Military Campus Programs with associates, bachelor's and master's degrees in business administration, education, criminal justice, and more on base and online, hpu.edu. They say that 15 minutes of classical music a day is all it takes for Keiki to reap benefits from this rich art form. How do you do that? Simple. Tune to HPR 2, your home for classical music, while they're doing homework, getting ready for bed, or in the car with you. It's easy, and it'll help lay the foundation for a lifetime of music appreciation. Listen to HPR2 wherever you are. Tune in on your radio, stream on our mobile app, or listen on your smart speaker. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience in human terms a refreshed installation featuring a new sound suit sculpture by artist Nick Cave. HonoluluMuseum.org. It's a delicate balance of biocontrols. Consider the snapshot on Palmyra Atoll in the Pacific. Get rid of invasive rats and another species becomes a problem. We talked to Stefan Kropodlowski about the Herculean volunteer efforts to manage the ecosystem on the wildlife refuge. He is the deputy superintendent for the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument. 
Well, coconuts were brought multiple times over many decades from, from various groups trying to establish copra plantations um, as, a, as an income source, as, like a, as a business. And none of them really took off, but it always, you know, for, for certain people, there was an appeal to it. And so they kept retrying. I think the first documented case was in like the 1870s. And the last documented case actually was in like the 1970s. So uh, there's probably additional times in there where it never got documented. But we, I think we've got at least five documented occurrences of people intentionally coming in to plant coconuts um, over that 100-year span. And then all of a sudden they just took off and took over yep. the whole island, basically. Exactly. And, and it's not saying that they weren't there before. We actually don't know. They're, they're very likely they could have been there before, but they probably were not coconut monocultures there before, where there was nothing but coconuts and large swaths of land. And, and that's really what the issue was, was those monocultures. Coconuts by themselves on a natural level would have been perfectly fine. Um, it's only when they form that monoculture that they, they become a, an issue. It's just stunning yeah. to think that you removed a million. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, coconuts at Palmyra have become invasive. That's not saying they're invasive everywhere, but just specifically that that's the interesting story about Palmyra. Um, and yeah, they're, once the rats used to feed on all the nuts that dropped, and once we got rid of the rats in, in 2011, that biosecurity was like gone. So there's actually like a biocontrol. The rats were controlling the coconuts. And then after that, the coconuts, every coconut makes about 75 nuts every year. So after that, we were getting um, several million of nuts being thrown down on the ground, and all of them are sprouting every year after that. And so that's when the, the problem began, when all those nuts started piling up and spreading out further and further and uh, out-competing all the native forest trees. Yeah, out of balance, out of whack. Yep, absolutely. You were able to remove a million trees, but there's still work to be done. Yes, quite a bit. We're, we're not quite halfway through the project, but uh, a million palms being cleared is, is definitely a milestone to hit. Uh, our, our initial estimate is we have 2.14 million coconuts at Palmyra Atoll. Um, and our goal is to remove all the coconut monocultures and about 99% of the palms altogether, leaving you know still a couple thousand eventually palms behind. But at, you know, we're just trying to give the nat native forest a foothold to reestablish against that um, encroaching wayfront and, and then be able to defend themselves after that. Because uh, uh, a tiny little seedling sprout and a coconut sprout, you know, uh, two months after each sprout, the seedling's like three inches tall and the coconut is like three feet tall. So they've just got this giant um, advantage over all the other trees. And we're just trying to even the playing field a little bit for the native trees. So what do you do once you chop these things down? I mean, you got to haul them out um, of there? Uh, no, we actually leave them in place. Uh, so we're the sprouts are getting chopped down, and then we just pile the fronds. And then the adults are actually, we drill holes into them, and then we inject an, herb, inject an herbicide into the trunk. Then they slowly die over time. And, and we actually want to leave that. If you picture, don't picture the palm, but picture all the nutrients that make up that palm. All those nutrients like belong to the atoll. Like we want them slowly going back into the atoll and then being used in the next trees that are grown up after them. So if we were to clear cut, for instance, and haul away all the lumber and all the physical palms, like all those nutrients would be removed from the atoll already. And, and they're pretty precious in these small little islands. Like there's not a lot of input. It's really only the seabirds providing additional input of new nutrients. So we want to protect that that stock of nutrients and, and let it go back into the system. So. So we let everything lay in place and slowly decay over time. The, the fronds on the ground go pretty quickly, and it can take quite a few years. We have palms when we, we started this process testing back in like 2009, 2010, 
And some of those adult palms that uh, we killed back then, they're still standing and they're just decaying a few feet at the time from the top down and kind of crumbling a little bit, which is perfect. I'm not saying that's going to happen all the time. We'd love it if it would, but just slowly releasing those nutrients back into the soil or other plants get to take advantage of them and, and take them back and make them in, incorporate them into their own structure. Would there be something wrong if you tried to accelerate the process? It depends. It's all a matter of scale. So how fast you go and how much you how much you want to go. Like clear if we want to accelerate and really invest a lot and send out heavy equipment and just clear cut everything, then we do run the risk of having a, a giant like nutrient push all of a sudden. Either we'll have a rainstorm and whatever precious soil remains will be washed away as a risk or a big wave comes up and washes it away or just all that decaying happening at one time could put a nutrient flush into the lagoons, which could, you know, we're worried that could trigger like an algae bloom or something like that, a, a plankton bloom that actually wind up smothering the marine life at that point. So, so we have intentionally developed a very slow uh, method forward so that we are, can be monitoring for those kinds of impacts and make sure we can adjust course if we see them. And so far, we, you know, we've taken a very cautious approach, um, doing it slowly, manually over time, and, and we're not seeing any of those, those negative impacts we're worried about yet, and hopefully that will continue. But we're, we're prepared to, we're not set in our ways at all. We're, we're prepared to modify our techniques if we need to. But yeah, even if given the funding to go and just like take everything out in a really short period of time, uh, from an ecological perspective, we would probably still opt to do it slowly over time. And so you were able to tackle this uh, amazing feat with staff and volunteers. Yeah, volunteers. I mean, yes, we have some staff, but by far it's the volunteer workforce who has uh, shouldered this burden and helped us achieve this milestone. Um, since we began the official, official coconut control aspect of the Rainforest Realignment Project in April of 2019, we've had 25 volunteers who have all come down to, um, you know, devote four months of their lives each to just living and working in this remote location where they, they're away from friends, family, um, no really like very little options for mail or getting deliveries. Like they're, they're fully invested for four months. And, you know, it sounds amazing. It's a tropical paradise is what it looks like, but they're working their butts off the entire time. Incredibly grueling physical work in hot tropical conditions. And we have to have protective equipment and on to protect them from falling coconuts and, and heat and things like that. So it's, it's, it's probably the hardest job many of them will ever have, but also they walk away seeing a, a forest regenerating when they leave. And so it's, it's also like a source of pride um, for a lot of them. Um, and, and that's our goal. Like they all should be leaving. It's a balance. How much work can we get out of them without making them drop? But also, you know, make sure they're leaving in good mental, healthy um, attitudes as, as they depart so they can be ambassadors for the refuge because so few people get to visit it. So I imagine, though, they were down there, you know, during this time of COVID and isolated and then it was time to go back, and then, you know, they're like, bam, something's changed in the whole world. Yep, absolutely. We we did have a group down there. Um, they arrived at the beginning of February, and COVID hit, like, March 11th in my book. That's when the NBA was canceled and Tom Hanks got COVID. So they were down just one month into their, their time there, COVID hit, and they were all very, very relieved and grateful to be where they were. Three of the four came off the end of May, and we're, a lot of things are still unknown then, so we had to help them um, adapt. To what we knew and, and one of them actually agreed to stay on for another 15 weeks with our biotech just you know they they opted for that they, they weren't doing as much cocoa work then um coconut control work then because there were only two people but yeah it, it's been a been an effort and an ordeal and then after that we actually had about a one-year hiatus 
because it was very difficult to send people down. Like we were, we were having really strict protocols, quarantining people in Honolulu for 14 days beforehand and then isolating them once they arrived at Palmyra for 14 days and then still having the mask and do, do all the normal things we do here, but having to do it in a really remote location that's really hard to get to. And so it was a trying period of time and we were waiting till we could be more confident that we could send people and prevent COVID from getting to Palmyra. And we did that successfully. And so we, we've been able to start sending down crews again. We, we believe we have got good protocols and techniques in place to prevent COVID from getting to Palmyra and, and we can keep it COVID free. So how far away is Palmyra from Honolulu? It is just under a thousand miles from Honolulu. So it's about a on a on a jet, it's about a two and a hour two and a half hour plane ride. On a on a sailboat it's five to seven days. On a motorboat it's about five days. So it takes quite a while to get there. So how do you get uh, the volunteers down there? The volunteers we fly down, so we actually have to there, there's no commercial transport opportunities whatsoever. So we have to charter an airplane and one of the only airplanes available in Hawaii that can go is a, is a private business jet, basically. So we have to charter our own private business jet every time we want to send people, which is one of the reasons why we need people to go for four months at a time. We just, we just can't afford that many private business jet charters, as you can imagine. What type of volunteers are you looking for? Uh, young, old, retirees, uh young college students looking for a year off or how does that work um uh, to do the work you need to be able-bodied so got to be able to handle a lot of grueling physical work we're looking for people who can handle like a more of a marathon than, than a sprint sort of level two so it takes both got to be physically capable and able and have good mental fortitude to be able to just deal with being isolated and uh, living and working with the same small group of people every single day, seven days a week for four months straight without a break, that, that takes a little X factor as well. It's hard to select for. So I would say able-bodied, energetic introverts tend to be the best candidates for the job. And and then after that, you know, we're, we are a conservation biology um, program. We, we would love it if we use this as a training program to train new upcoming conservation professionals. But it's not a requirement for the work. So, some folks have done like trail crew work and other things like that for the park service who weren't necessarily conservation professionals. They're also perfect for this. Like they're excellent. But yeah, it's, it's really having a, a, someone who's got an easygoing attitude, slightly introverted, but energetic and, 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 and very able-bodied. Those are the kind of people who do well at Palmyra. Okay, so it's survivor... Palmyra Island Edition. Survivor without the drama. Yes, so <laughs> the individuals who do well, who make for good television viewing on Survivor, usually are not the type of individuals who do well on our long-term four-month camp. Yeah, I mean, if you don't get along with someone, being on an island for four months is not going to be fun. Exactly. We need those easygoing attitudes and personalities. So when do you bring your next recruits onto the island? We're, we're working on that right now. I'm actually hoping that late January will be the next time we can deploy a, a team of volunteers, and we will be advertising for that um, on our website at the Pacific Rhode Islands Marine National Monument website and uh, other other places we go to. Hopefully, actually, just next week, I'll get the okay to, to fly that advertisement. We have been talking with Stefan Kratbalowski, Deputy Superintendent of the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument and former refuge manager for Palmyra Atoll. Look for links later on our website to find more.
tis the season to see Kioaya. These long-billed shorebirds spend their winters here. They're not too common on the main Hawaiian Islands, so we have their call for you from the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. The Kioea, or bristle-thighed curlew, is a medium-sized shorebird with a wingspan of almost 36 inches, a long, downwardly curved bill, and long, grayish legs. They're mostly mottled brown and get their English name from the very noticeable bristle-like feathers at the base of their thighs. With a total population size of about 7,000 birds, Kioea breed in the summer in Alaska and make the long, non-stop flight back to Hawaii and other islands in the South Pacific every August to escape the Alaska winter. Adults generally fly back to Alaska to breed in early May, but once the juveniles arrive for their first winter in Hawaii, they stay for two or three years because they don't breed until they get older. This makes it possible to see them year-round in Hawaii primarily in typical shorebird habitats, like wetlands, shorelines, and grassy areas. If you see a bird near the shore with a really long, downward curved bill, with a call that's been described as sounding like whistles of an adoring pursuer, you're probably looking at a kioea. The word kioea means to stand high, as on long legs and they were important in early Hawaii as they were one of the few birds mentioned in the Kumulipo, or Hawaiian creation chant. Kioea are the only known shorebird to actively use tools for foraging. They've been observed grabbing pieces of coral in their bills and rearing their head back in a big arc to forcefully toss the coral at seabird eggs to break the shell so they can feed on the contents. While kioea love eggs, they also feed on crustaceans, small fish, and insects. Kioea are the only shorebird that can't fly for a period of time when they're molting new feathers in Hawaii, making them susceptible to predators. This is likely one reason why they are much more common in the predator-free northwestern Hawaiian islands, like Midway and Laysan. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friends of Hakalauforest.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we thought about Hawaii Public Radio's very first moments on the air. They came in November of 1981 after nearly five years of meetings to form a nonprofit that was originally called Hawaii Islands Public Radio. Dreams of a broadcast facility for Hawaii came together quickly after Fujio Matsuda, president of the University of Hawaii at the time, offered studio space in the varsity building on the school's lower campus. HPR's two-person staff moved in on June 20th, 1981. The transmitter site was on Wheelie Wheelie Nui Ridge on a tower used by Radio KIYE, which now broadcasts as KRTR. A lot of thought went into the choice of music to kick things off, and on November 13, 1981, a switch was thrown. Buttons were pushed, and out came Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde. And that was the answer we were looking for, and nobody got it. 
<laughs> we stumped you. That's today's quiz. Uh, do you have one that you'd like to share? Write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. The 2021 Honolulu International Film Festival begins this week. The festival screens dozens of films from the Asia-Pacific Rim and spotlights Hawaii filmmakers and their stories. One short film screening this week is Ala Moana Boys. When is this going to be over? You're going to keep trying to kill us. we got to do something. You don't do bad. Why is being killed? Well, we can't do nothing. Who's next? You. Me. This ain't nobody's fault. We're in it right now. And it ain't over. You're smarter than that boy. You're just acting tough. Nobody getting hurt. We fight or we die. But you put that gun down in a time Ala Moana Boys adapts some of the events around Honolulu's infamous Massey trials in the 1930s. It centers around Joseph Kahaavai, one of the five young local men who pleaded innocent after they were accused of raping a white woman. The film was written by Alexander Didi, a Honolulu-based freelance journalist and University of Montana alum, and directed by Oahu native Kaylee Grace, a self-taught award-winning cinematographer. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with the two to discuss making a film about some of the darkest days in Hawaii's history. Kelly, this is probably the most notorious case in Hawaii's history. I know several books have been written about it. I know the Moana writers optioned a novel in hopes of turning it into a series. And I remember the 1986 miniseries because my fifth grade teacher gave us extra credit if we watched it. I know it's important that we remember what happened so it doesn't happen again. But what was your reason behind wanting to take on this adaptation of the story? The first reason that came to me was I was upset at all these ways it was told. To me, I felt it was one-sided towards either the trial or the masses. And I wanted to know more about what, what these boys might have felt because I, I connected a lot with their stories personally. And I just would have liked to see or hear more about what, what life was like for them before and after. So that, that was the first reason why. Alex, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think so Kali'i and Mary Pierce, the producer, approached me with the idea for this story. And at first I was, I was reluctant. I, I wasn't sure if I was the right person to write it. I didn't know much about the Massey trials. And as soon as I started reading up on it and looking into it, I realized not only how important it was for Hawaii, but you know, how incredibly um, the miscarriage of justice happened, right? And so it's true, everything that, that I was looking up and that I was reading was told more from the perspective of the people in power. And I think a part of that was because the documentation is more favored from their side. So I thought it was interesting how Kali'i wanted to approach it, you know, from the boys and let's really try and tell their side of the story and what it was like for them going through this. Alex, when you were writing the script, what kind of research did you do? Did you jump into a lot of the books that were written? Did you happen to watch that miniseries that came out in 1986? What was your process for the research? 
I didn't watch the miniseries, but I did read some of the books and there's a PBS documentary about it. And there are some, I forget which law school it is, but there's, there's a, an online trove of documents from the time, including the Pinkerton report about the case afterward. And so I just scoured through those. And at the time I was doing this, it was in March, 2020. So unfortunately I didn't have access to libraries because everything had just closed down. So anything I could find online. And I was trying to, to not only find out information about the case, but also get to know the boys as much as possible because we wanted to portray them as true as possible to their character. And so, you know, it was difficult because there's not a lot recorded of them. They didn't take the stand. And when there is actual documentation of the way that they spoke and who they were, it's, you know, police interviews, detective interviews and that kind of stuff when, when they're probably not themselves and trying to be, you know, on the up and up. And so I think we, we were able to gather as much as we could about them and just from the information that from the, from the books and from the research and from the papers, try and portray them as, as true to their characters as we possibly could. Kaylee, I saw the SFGate article on the Joseph Kahahavai descendants. Did you have any contact with them in regard to making the film? So I did connect with, first I connected with Vance Kaleohano Parat, who's in that article. And he's a descendant of Joseph's half-brother, who was born after, after he died, which his name was Joe. He reached out to me on, on Instagram because <clears throat> he's seen that we're doing something on his family. So he reached out to me and kind of wanted to know what we're doing because they're kind of taking, they're kind of the new generation of the family. They're being proactive about kind of vetting everyone in their own way. So he just wanted to see who, who I was and what, what I was about. So, so we met up and then we eventually had a Zoom meeting with all his family. And there's actually a lot of Kahabais from his side. So we did get to talk story and just find out what his grandpa was like, because they didn't really know much about Joseph. But we wanted to get to know their family a little more and, you know, just go through the steps and processes of, of what we were trying to do. Alex, Joseph Kahahavai gets a lot of the focus when it comes to the story. When you were doing your research, were you able to learn more about the four other boys? It's tough. I think some of them there's more published about, like Ben Ahakuelo, and some of them that there isn't as, as much. So... We, we pulled what we could, certainly. I think Joe, there's there's the most information about. And so that's part of the reason that, that he takes the centerpiece of this story. Kelly E, making a film, even a short film, I know is not financially easy. I can only imagine making a period piece kind of compounds the difficulty, the costumes, the props, the locations. How did you overcome those challenges? So my, my background is I, I own my own production company. So my resources are pretty good when it comes to that. For the wardrobe, a friend of mine, he had access to period piece wardrobe and he actually has, it, it, it's actually the same wardrobe from the film, The Waterman that's coming out. So we had access to that entire wardrobe. So we didn't, we only had to buy small pieces here and there. So that was, that was probably the biggest part of our budget that we could save money on. Location was Waipalu Boy Plantation Village. So we shot everything there besides the courthouse scene. And they were really nice. Evelyn Alo, who, who's executive director there, she, she gave us a good deal on, on the location. 
you know, I, I try not to ask for favors, but for this one, I, I really had to ask a lot of friends for favors for this. And they believed in the story. And, you know, I don't really ask very often for favors. So, but I used basically all I had for this one. So I still owe a lot of people, but, you know, it's well worth it, I think, to make this film. Alex, with the recent push for society as a whole to be more respectful of cultural right and to be more sensitive to the plight of minorities, how did that impact your portrayal of a story that essentially deals with racism in 1930s Hawaii? Yeah, this was something when we were first talking about doing this film that we knew it was challenging. It was sad that some of the stuff they were dealing with in 1931 was still relevant today. And now this was again in, in March 2020. So it was, you know, before George Floyd and the, the protests we saw last summer, the movement we saw last summer. But I think, you know, it was for us, we just wanted to to tell these stories of the boys as humans and as regular people. And I think Klee was really smart, you know, at the beginning, he said when we started out, like, and we need to, if we can, you know, get in touch with some of the descendants of these families and get to know them as well as we can to really do justice to their story. So I think we just tried to to handle it from uh, doing it as much honor as possible and treating them with as much respect as possible because they were real people. One thing I got from from that scene with all the boys in the home right after Shorty got beat up, there's a real kind of hopelessness that kind of hangs in the air kind of a hopeless, you know, what options do we have, if any? Is that something that you did intentionally? Is that something that you gathered when you were doing your research that the local people were just so underpowered in that time? Yeah, um, hopefully, you know, the, the film doesn't come across as entirely hopeless. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the whole, but just, I just remember sure. just that scene. I was just like, wow, we, was, was it really like that? Didn't really feel like we had any power at the time? I think from what we could gather about the time, you know, I think it's much less likely that they would have thought about, you know, fighting back and about revolting. There was, you know, the, the power structures that we see today were just more deeply ingrained then, right? It was, they really had no option. There really was no voice. And so I think they try and come at it from different perspectives in terms of, hey, you know, what can we do? Can we fight back? Should we just lie low? you know, what are our options here? And at some level, they were they were kind of just stuck. Kaylee, it, it seems that the story and the idea of the boy's innocence was forgotten for a period of our history. Why do you suppose it kind of faded from public consciousness? And what's your feeling about whether people today are familiar with the case? Well, I was actually surprised how many people don't know much about the case, or if any at all. You know, I'll be honest, I, I didn't know much either, actually. I knew very surface stuff. I don't believe I was taught that in, in school back, back when I was in, in high school. And I do know that they teach that now, but it's very, you know, surface, not much. I would hope this could be used more as an educational piece as well in, in school. I mean, it, you know, of course, language and stuff like that. I think it can be used to open conversations and as an educational tool because the stuff that was created before painted a very different picture, I think, of what Hawaii was. I do think it painted a lot of the picture, but there is still some stuff missing, like how you said the boys were hopeless. I did see a lot of that in, in the previous works of, of media that was created. And I believe that came out purposely from my point of view. But there also is 
the hope at the end. I wanted to give that hope as well. I wanted to bring people out of, out of that darkness. So, you know, the generations before, almost in a way knowing that someday it will get better, but we have to take the hits now for, for the future generation. So that's why I wanted to, sh to show that there is hope. These generations have endured a lot. So for us now, our responsibilities have changed and, and we need to share and, and bring us back up because the past generations have, have done a lot for us as far as sacrifice. That was Ala Moana Boys director Kelly Grace and screenwriter Alexander Didi talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. The short film will be part of the Made in Hawaii Shorts Program 1 screening uh, tomorrow, November 4th. For tickets to HIF, check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. tomorrow learning to live with alzheimer's got a story about alzheimer's or dementia you'd like to share with us call our talk back line 808-792-8217 post your comments on facebook at the conversation hpr or tweet us at hi conversation or email us too and you want to listen back to something you heard find our archive shows online i'm katherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation 